Good morning. Good morning. Man, I hope when I'm 90 years old, I can still sing with enthusiasm when I come to worship. Our culture is uh, fascinated these days with superheroes. You know that that's the case because of the millions of dollars that the whole Marvel Universe movies have brought in. I'm echoing here pretty bad. Um, the thing that, no, I'm not echoing. The thing that, that superheroes often seem to have in common, you know, they have different powers and, and different backstories, but, but they all have, mostly, they all have a secret identity. And there's, there's a, a series in, you know, in every storyline where, where somebody tries to find out their identity and they work, you know, to go to great lengths to protect it. Superheroes started in comic books, and then comic books became what we call graphic novels and now multi-million dollar movies, but, but that element is still there. Batman is the classic. He's probably the most secretive of all the superheroes. Bruce Wayne, uh, multi-millionaire playboy, uh, has a bat cave underneath his mansion. And uh, the bad guys, the bad guys, how many times in the old Adam West show did the bad guys capture Batman, and nobody would ever take his mask off. <laughs> but he kept his secret identity. Superman. Superman has literally the best pair of glasses in, in, the, in the world. Because he just has to put on that one pair of glasses, and nobody can recognize him. <laughs> Clark Kent just looks that much different with glasses than, than Superman. That's why it was kind of a, a bit of a a surprise ending for those who hadn't read the, the comic stories when in the first Iron Man movie, Tony Stark, another billionaire genius inventor playboy, stands in front of a, uh, a press conference and pauses right before he says, I'm Iron Man. <laughs> and the room goes crazy. People screaming questions, jumping up, trying to get his attention. Because here's a superhero who had just revealed his true identity. We think about Jesus this way sometimes because there is something that, that scholars refer to in the Gospels that, that we call the Messianic secret. And the Messianic secret are these places in the, in the story of Jesus where uh, where he does a miracle or, or something that's, that's relatively, you know, amazing. And, and then he immediately tells the, the people involved, don't go tell anybody else about this. Now, we've misunderstood the Messianic secret because we've let that kind of dominate our idea of Jesus that he somehow was, was roaming uh, Judea and Galilee and, and Samaria, those areas, for three and a half years, trying to fly under the radar and not let anybody really know who he was. That's completely wrong. 
In fact, the messianic secret was never about Jesus hiding his identity so much as it was Jesus navigating uh, the popularity with the people that could throw off the timing of what his ministry was to do. There was a, there was a timing leading to a confrontation that would produce the cross, and that was all in the design of the redemptive story. So the, the Messianic secret is really Jesus saying, not now. Don't make a big deal about this. Don't go tell anybody because I, I don't want that uh, to, to throw off the, the flow of events in a sense. What we don't realize because we've allowed this idea of the Messianic secret to kind of dominate our thinking is that Jesus wasn't hiding himself. In fact, we've already seen in the early chapters of, of John that Jesus is fairly open about who he is. I mean, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the earth. And Jesus didn't go, oh, oh, shucks, not me. No, he accepted that. That was nothing short of an acknowledgement by John that this is the Messiah. We see in John chapter 3 that he sits down with Nicodemus, uh, a, a man of the Pharisees, and, and bluntly uh, confronts Nicodemus with the, the, the story of salvation and puts himself in a position as the one who makes it possible. John chapter 4, we see him talking to a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob, a woman with no theological credentials, no standing in society, no importance from a, a worldly perspective, and yet he openly tells her, the one who is coming, you're talking to him right now. He identified himself as the Messiah. Well, now we get to chapter 5, and we're going to see the clearest, let me change that. It's not clear. We have to fight to work through it because it's not in the original language that we're going to look at today. But it is Jesus unmistakably claiming not only to be the Messiah, but in John chapter 5, he's going to say, I'm the Son of God and I'm the Son of Man. And it's important for us to work through what, in, in a sense, is probably the most difficult passage that we've come across so far in the Gospel of John. Difficult for us to understand because it's a difficult concept. Jesus is going to claim to be fully God and fully human. He's not hiding it. He's not ducking it. He's not trying to keep a low profile. He's talking to his severest enemies, and he's saying, let me tell you exactly who I am. So you don't get this wrong. John chapter 5. We started John chapter 5 last week with the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, remember, he's gone to Jerusalem because it's the time for the festival. And while he's there, he, he makes his way to the pool of Bethesda where he identifies a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He asks him a blunt question, do you want to be healed? And the man says, absolutely, it's not lack of desire, it's simply lack of opportunity that's prevented me from getting into this pool. And Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, and he heals him on the spot. Now, this guy leaves the pool of Bethesda, and we know he eventually makes his way to the temple. We saw that. But on the way, he gets stopped, I don't know how many times, the text implies multiple times that people stopped him and corrected him because he was carrying a load, a burden, on 
the Sabbath. They stopped him and said, hey, you, you can't do that. You can't carry that on the Sabbath. Well, see, there was this guy that healed me, and he told me to do this. And he takes a few steps, and the next guy comes along and says, hey, wait a minute. You, you can't walk down the street with a load on your shoulder like that. You can't do that. Well, this guy that, that, that healed me, he told me to do it. Finally, the Pharisees get wind of the, uh, uh, of the story that there's a guy who's just blatantly breaking the Sabbath laws. And so they confront him and say, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, you see, I was laying there and there was a guy and, and he came and he asked me if I wanted to be healed and he healed me. Must have been from God. I mean, only somebody from God could, could heal a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he said, take up your bed and walk. And I just, you know, figured that he probably was the man to obey. And so they say, well, who is this man? Well, I, I, I never caught his name. Well, eventually they do catch his name, and they go confront Jesus. And we finished last week with verse 16 of, of John chapter 5 that said, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on a Sabbath. That was their initial problem with Jesus. They're going to go find him they're going to start to persecute him because he's messing with the laws related to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The conversation that starts with their challenge to him about the Sabbath, you can almost imagine Jesus saying, well, if you think that's something, let me tell you something else that's going to really blow your mind. And what started as a dialogue becomes a monologue as for the next section in this chapter, Jesus is the only one talking. And he's going to give us in these verses what I would call the heart of Christianity. The affirmation that Jesus is both divine and human, both son of God and son of man. Jesus in John 5 makes exactly these claims, and I know that I'm interpreting his words properly because that's exactly how the Pharisees understood him. They accurately understood and they considered the, his claims to make him a blasphemer. But he's going to offer such a powerful defense that it's impossible to refute his argument. And yet... As we see the story unfold in the pages to come, it's fascinating to me that one who is the Son of God and the Son of Man in an unmistakable, undeniable way, in their minds, he still needs to die. John chapter 5, we're going to begin with verse 17 with what I've called an astonishing claim rejected. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, verse 16, and they decide that, that he needs to be persecuted, but he's going to take it to a whole new level. In verse 17 it says, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, for us in the English, it would be easy to say, Well, what's so unusual about that? We might use that kind of language. We might say, Well, you know, my father in heaven is working, and I'm just trying to come alongside and, and work with him in what he's doing. And we would take that and say that as a, uh, a relatively uh, unobtrusive kind of uh, confession. But that's not what Jesus was saying, and really it's the original languages that makes this clear. Jesus was not here suggesting 
that God was the father of all men and that he was just trying to, to come alongside and serve that God. The language makes it clear that he was, he was not teaching that God was the father of all men. The Jews would have accepted that idea. What he's saying here is Jesus was claiming a special relationship with God involving equality. He's not saying our father. He's saying my father. And in the original language, it's a way of saying my family, the one that I'm a part of. Jews would never have spoken about God in that way. They would have said our father. They might have said the father of, uh, of all mankind. But they never would have said this because they understood that he was claiming something that they considered blasphemy. How do I know that's the right interpretation of verse 17? Because verse 18, for this reason, because he claimed this relationship with the Father, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that's a misdemeanor. But here's the felony. But he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what he was saying, and that's what the Pharisees understood. His claim was categorized by what the ancient rabbis referred to as sinning with the high hand. It was a phrase, sinning with the high hand, that referred to any uh, action that was considered to be a direct challenge to God. Uh, it, their, doc, their, their documents actually said sinning with a high hand is a direct challenge to God unless the claim is true. Jesus is claiming equality with God himself. But because they refused to acknowledge that it was true, they considered this to be the height of blasphemy. I said felony, that's really the wrong word. This wasn't a felony. For them, this was a capital crime. And Jesus had to die. In fact, this specific charge, I am equal with God, becomes the reason for the crucifixion. In verse 19, he's going to continue. Uh, they're, they're losing their minds. They're, they're pulling out their hair and, and going crazy. And Jesus is going to begin what I've called an amazing defense. And in these next verses, verses 19 through 30, we're going to find the clearest statement of Christ's unity with the Father, His deity, His Messiahship. He starts with verse 19 by talking about the fact that He is in perfect cooperation with the Father. Now, I'm going to read these verses, and honestly, at, at first glance, you're going to be like, okay, I, I didn't get any of that. Um, let's, read these, let's read 19 to 23, and then we'll go back and, and, and break it down a little bit so that, that you can understand it. I spent a lot of time with this passage. This is one of the this is one of the most weighty theological sections, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the entire New Testament. And this is Family Worship Day, so there's lots of our children here that, that are, I spent the week haunted by that, that saying that um, if you can't teach something simply, it's because you don't understand it your, yourself. So I've grappled with this. I want to see if we can, can make sense of it in a way that we can hold on to it, because honestly, this is the heart of Christianity, and if we don't get this right, we are not Christian. We are something else, but we are not Christian. Verse 19, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly. Now, let me pause right there. 
Because all the way through this section, Jesus is going to start new paragraphs by saying, truly, truly. Some, some translations, particularly the, the Old King James, translates this, verily, verily. Uh, you may have a translation that translates it, amen, amen. It's just a, a Hebraic figure of speech that calls attention to, to what comes next is really, really important. It would be like us saying, okay, pay attention, put your phone down, get this. This is important. Don't miss what I'm about to say. And this, this little uh, Hebraic saying shows up several times in this passage because what he's saying here is so vitally significant to what will become the Christian faith. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in the same way. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son just as they honor the father. The one who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. All right. I, 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 I can see you, you followed me through that and you went, uh, so let's see what we can find here. Perfect cooperation with the father starts with what I've called imitation. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in the same way. What he's telling us is he is son, not a son, not like Israel were the sons of God. He's claiming a unique relationship. And he says that the father is the model for the son's activity. In fact, what he means is everything you see me doing, I'm simply doing in a visible way the kinds of things that the father is doing in an invisible way all the time. His goals Jesus' goals were identical to God's goals. Jesus' will matched God's will exactly. He's saying there is an imitation here, and everything you see me doing is perfectly in line. It's a visible representation of what God is doing invisibly. I'm perfectly imitating. This is the nature of fathers and sons. I mean, it happens with with. with when you're, a, when you're a dad and you have a little one and they imitate you, Jesus is using this language to say that I'm equal to the Father to the point that I do the exact things that the Father does. That imitation is followed by intimacy. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. The basis for the son's work is that the father loves the son. Now, what's fascinating about verse 20, uh, I know you didn't come this morning for a, a grammar lesson, but let me, just, let me just tell you this. All the verbs in verse 20 are present tense verbs in the Greek. You say, well, that means nothing to me. Here's what it means. Present tense Greek verbs indicate an ongoing activity that's, that that is going on up till now. So, so listen to what, he, what he's saying here. Let's translate it this way. For the father loves the son 
up until this very moment. And he shows him all things that he himself is doing. He's showing them to me, even today, all the things that he's doing right now. It is a statement that he has an intimacy with the Father. The Jews, by this time, they've pulled out all their hair. They're, they're, they're gnashing their teeth. I mean, they're in agony because Jesus is claiming something that, that no Jewish man would ever have spoken out loud. I imitate the Father perfectly because he and I are so intimately connected. He loves me and shows me everything he does so that I can, in fact, do exactly the same thing. Imitation and intimacy is followed by initiation. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Now this is fascinating because he's claiming a characteristic that all through the Old Testament was uniquely assigned to God. That is, God was understood by the Jews as the giver of life. Go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 2-7, it talks about how when God created man, he took the, the, the dirt from the earth and he fashioned it into the shape of an image that would, that would represent the image of God. But the significance is it says that God breathed into that, that model of, of clay. And that model of clay, that dirt of the earth, became in Hebrew a nephesh, a living soul. It's the idea that, that we are not ultimately defined by the physical reality of who we are. There is a life that animates us that is from the only one who can give life. He breathed life in. We see, um, we see in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, we see a, a picture of, of Israel uh, being restored by a picture of a valley of dry bones. These are bones that are so dry, all of the skin, all of the muscles, all of the ligaments, all of the soft tissue is, is long gone. They're bleached in the sun. And it says that the breath of God comes through the valley and all of a sudden dead bones begin to assemble themselves and they live, they become living beings because there is one who can give life even in the face of death. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Listen, part of the things, part of what we, um, what little we know about the sacrificial system is, is just the average person is we know that, that the Jews had what they, what they today call kosher food. You have to eat a diet, a kosher diet means to eat certain kinds of food. But kosher is not defined by the kind of food. There, there are lists of foods that are acceptable and foods that are unacceptable. But even the foods that are acceptable, they are made kosher not just by being on the list. They're made kosher because there is a process, there's an acceptable way to prepare those foods. What that was is in the Old Testament, they understood that blood represented life. And because life was, was, was the province of God alone, to kill an animal 
and to be able to eat it meant that it had to be killed in a certain kind of way. The blood had to be drained in a certain kind of way. There was a process that made the food kosher. Why? Because the sacrificial system was an object lesson in helping the people understand that life and death are in the province of God alone. That's why, what is the most, uh, uh, what is the crime that we consider to be the most heinous crime that can be committed? It is murder. Why is murder such a big deal? Well, to use the Jewish language, to commit a murder is to sin with a high hand. It is to challenge God by taking a, a life which is something only God is allowed to do. He's the giver of life. And so in this verse, here's what Jesus is saying. With that whole background, understanding God as the giver of life, he says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. In other words, he's saying, I am a Savior. I am a life giver just like the Father. Folks, don't misunderstand. Jesus is hiding nothing here. He's making, as far as the Jews were concerned, outrageous claims. Well, then there's the identification. Look at verse 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What he's suggesting here is that the absolute dependence on, of the Son upon the Father means that the decision-making process of judgment has been handed to the Son. As a result, the Father no longer needs to judge. He's suggesting, it says here, that the Father gave the authority to judge to the Son so that people would honor the Son. Now think about that. When we go into a courtroom, even in our secular material world when we go into a courtroom here's what you don't do hey judge how's it going no no that'll get you in trouble in fact you speak disrespectfully to the judge you get cited for what they call contempt of court what do we do the judge says are we ready to proceed and you say yes your honor we're all here we're prepared there is a reverence and a respect what this verse is saying is that the Father actually gave the responsibility of judging right and wrong into the hands of the Son so that He would be honored the way that we honor the judge who makes life and death decisions. What He's building here is an argument that I am not just claiming to be the Son of God, but I have such perfect cooperation with the Father. I imitate Him in every way. I have an intimacy that shows I'm equal in nature with Him. I initiate life because He has declared me to be the life giver. And I identify evil and issue judgments. And then He says, the one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In other words... Dishonoring Jesus is a very serious matter. It is not possible to believe the Father and then to turn away from the Son. It's important for you to remember that because when you run across a co-worker 
where you work or you have a conversation with somebody and they say this outrageous statement. Well, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm just not much on Christianity. I don't do all that Jesus stuff. Here's the thing. The Father and the Son are so perfectly connected that you don't get to separate them like that. You either take Jesus and the Father together or you don't take either one. I believe God. See, we say that because we just think that it sounds silly not to say it. You know, we know that I don't believe in God. I think there's no God. I'm an atheist. We know that that's a foolish statement. I mean, it's foolish because you can't possibly have enough knowledge in the vastness of the universe to say categorically that God couldn't exist anywhere because you don't have enough experience over the entire cosmos to make that claim. So we, we don't want to say that because it sounds silly. And we just say, well, I believe in God, but, but Jesus not so much. I'm sorry. It's a package deal. Because God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, they are united in a way that cannot be ununited, cannot be separated. He has perfect cooperation with the Father. But here's the other part of his, his defense. Beginning in verse 24, he's going to claim to have complete authority over life and complete authority over judgment. Eternal life and eternal judgment. Jesus is saying, these things are in my hands. Look at what he tells us in verse 24. Truly, truly, there's that, that saying again. Listen up, he means. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. It's fascinating. If you want to memorize a verse, you ought to consider memorizing John 5.24. Because John 5.24, I want to read it again, and I want you to see what it sounds like to you. What other verse does this remind you of? Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5.24, like John 3.16, is pure gospel. Salvation is an accomplished fact and an assured position here. He says, when you hear my words and believe them, when you hear me and believe me, that's the required response. From that moment, your future and your present begin to merge because of the work of Jesus. Listen, uh, eternal life is a little bit of a misleading name because we sometimes think that that means when I end this life, then I start eternal life. But the teaching of Scripture is that Christ, the life giver, when you come into a relationship with, with, with God through Jesus Christ, he gives you life. And so the life that we will experience without sin in eternity, that life begins to be experienced right now later john will 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 say will have jesus saying I, I i came to give them life and to give them life more abundant 
So maybe we should go with the phrase abundant life rather than eternal life because basically what he means is I'm going to take your present and I'm going to take your, your future, which is now certain, and I'm going to merge those together in such a way that you'll never be the same again. Just like John 3.16, anybody who hears and believes will come into this kind of abundant eternal life and he'll be free and, and safe from the judgment that will fall to those who reject. John 5.24 is pure gospel. But verse 25, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. He's about to st- say something that is so important. He said it uh, in verse 19. He said it in verse 24. And now here it is again in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Let me tell you about this. Um, Here again is where, this is why why we need to, to have somebody who knows the original language. Because if we read verse 25, because we have just enough theological awareness, we would be likely to read this and say, uh, even the, the t- a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And we would think those who are spiritually dead, that is people who haven't been saved, and they'll hear, uh, they'll hear the voice of the Spirit and they'll be drawn into salvation. But the Greek word here for the dead is a word that, that can only mean one thing. It's not a metaphor. It's not an analogy. It's a word that says there is a time coming and it's here now. When dead bodies will hear my voice and they'll live. Now, what does that, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? Well, let me, let me explain. I haven't done a lot as we've worked through these early chapters of the Gospel of John. I haven't done a lot with the structure that John uses in, in, in his book, in his Gospel. But what, what John does is he builds his gospel story around a series of signs. Now, we have talked about that. Signs are miracles that are not meant to be uh, the ends in themselves. They point people back to Jesus. When, you are, when you're exiting on the, the exit ramp on the freeway and you see there's a sign there and it says food, and then it has the logos of all the food places that are, that are close to that exit. Well, if you stop at that sign, you won't get anything to eat. That sign tells you where to go to get food. Well, the miracles in the Gospel of John, they're not stopping places. They're, they're mile markers. They point us to where we need to go. They, they, they push us to recognize who Jesus is. Well... John does his entire gospel built along a series of of signs, but there is within those series of signs uh, what we call a festival cycle. Remember at the first verse verse of of John chapter 5, it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a festival. While he's in the area celebrating this festival, there are four distinct signs that are attached to this section of his ministry. The first one we've already seen. He went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. The second one is coming up. We'll see it soon. He's going to feed 5,000 people miraculously. 
The third one after that is that he's going to, uh, to give sight to a blind man. The fourth one, the concluding sign in the festival cycle of signs is John chapter 11 when he's called to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he stands there and he says, hey, um, uh, roll that stone back and open up the tomb. With everybody going, um, mm, uh, don't want to do that. Uh, he's been in there for a while, four days to be exact. And, and uh, there's a reason we cover it up and seal it because it's, it's probably pretty nasty in there right now. And Jesus says, I said, open the tomb. Okay. Open and comes back. Notice what Jesus does, does not do. He doesn't stick his head in and survey the situation. He doesn't look around to see what he can see. He simply stands and he does this. Lazarus, come out! With everybody going, what, 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 what's he doing? What, what's he doing? That's what they're saying until Lazarus came out. And he's like wrapped up and Jesus is Jesus is like, get that stuff off of him because the dead body heard the voice of the life giver and he lived. Folks, it's not about Lazarus. It's not even about that miracle of resuscitation. It's a sign pointing to the one who was the life giver because he was equal as the Son of God, equal with the Father Himself. This is an amazing testimony. There's no messianic secret here. Jesus is putting Himself on display as the giver of eternal life. Well, now look at this. In verse 27, He's going to change. He's going to turn to um, eternal judgment. That's the other element. The two qualities of God that he's claiming here is the right to give life and the authority to issue judgment. So he turns to judgment here, verse 27. It says that the Father, in verse 26, it said he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All right, let's talk about that. He tells us, this is, this, what's interesting here is from the beginning of this section that we've been looking at, Jesus has been referring to himself. He's been talking about being the Son of God. He's been claiming deity, divinity, equality with God. But here in verse 27, he uses a brand new phrase. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, why is that important? Well, the problem with the human condition is that sin separates us from God. And because the, pain, the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death, there's nothing we can do because it takes our full death to make payment for the debt that we owe. So we can never, 
we can never solve the problem of our separation from God because we're, we're, we're stuck in a, in a whirlpool that's sucking us down. So God took it upon himself to pay the price that we couldn't pay. But God couldn't do that as God because it wouldn't be a, a one-to-one transaction. It wouldn't be a match. We needed a human being who could pay the penalty for sin. So God became human. And in that moment of becoming human, he laid aside. Paul tells us in, in Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus set aside the prerogatives, the benefits of being divine so that he could live this life as a human. And so that was necessary because he's going to show us how to live a human life, the life we were meant to live. He's going to walk in such closeness with the Spirit of God. He's going to depend on the Spirit of God in every step, in every word that He speaks, in every action that He takes. And that dependence is going to be so complete that He lives the human life without sin. And He's pointing us to the reality that when we are transformed into new creations, our sin is paid for and dependence increasing sensitivity to the leadership of the spirit of god is how we can live a human life freer from from the sins and those things that that used to mark us and we can be what we say is christ-like more like jesus now he uses that phrase son of man and he says um that he has the authority to execute judgment. Pronouncing judgment is the reverse side of giving life. And what he's going to tell us here is that he has the, the ability to flawlessly evaluate both the righteous and the unrighteous. He begins to describe two resurrections. At some point in, in human history, his voice will cry out, and those who have been accepted by their faith will be brought out and acknowledged as the children of God. That is a resurrection to life. But then there will be another call. This time his voice will call out to those who have rejected that invitation. They have done a life of unrighteous deeds, and they will come out and they will now be judged according to their deeds, and they will be sentenced to eternal death, to separation from God. Jesus is claiming the ability to flawlessly make that distinction and get it right 100% of the time. It's fascinating, really, because he's, he's, the Jews have to be, they have to have fainted dead away by now because of the claims that he has made. He tells us, he tells us this in, in the end, verse 30. And this is a fascinating verse. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, well, now what's fascinating about that, we could say that. I can do nothing of my own. 
But Jesus here, when he's talking in these verses about judging the righteous and the unrighteous, and, and, and his judgment is righteous because he doesn't seek his own will, he's not talking, he's been talking in the early verses about being the Son of God. Here he's talking about being the Son of Man. This is a remarkable statement to make as a human being. What he's suggesting is, as the Son of God, the Son did nothing of himself. That would be impossible. There's perfect harmony within, between the Father and the Son. But here he's talking about being the Son of Man. This is where he acts as judge. And so it becomes a question, how can he do that? It's an amazing statement when he says, I can do nothing of my own. Because he was God behaving as man. He learned as man to obey God in order to demonstrate to man the truth about man, that man can do nothing without God. In other words, he is putting on display how you and I can live our life by walking in tune with the Spirit of God, living by the Word of God, and becoming like Jesus more and more every day in the process. You see, we say, well, Jesus is a great moral teacher. Yeah, but that's not enough to say about Jesus. You say, well, he's a, he's a perfect ethical example for us to follow. Well, yes, but again, that's, that's not enough. You say, well, well he's, uh, he, he, he's a, a, a mentor, in gentleness and kindness. Yeah, maybe. But that's not enough. The heart of Christianity is that He is Son of God and Son of Man. In 451 AD, there was a universal council called the Council of Chalcedon. Chalcedon is where the early church formalized the parameters, the boundaries of orthodox Christology. Christology is just a word that means the doctrine of Christ. At Chalcedon, they took all of the competing views of what people said about Jesus, and they matched them up against Scripture. And they issued a statement which now for all of these years since then has established the, the boundaries. It's, it's set the fence line of what we believe about Jesus. Chalcedon says Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. But putting that together did not create a, a mix of some third type of being. He is not a hybrid. He's fully God. Chalcedon said he was fully God and fully man. His natures joined without confusion so that he functions as the Son of God, as a perfect representation of the God that we can't see, and he functions as the Son of Man, the perfect model of what we want to be. Now, folks, I know, I know this passage is, is hard, and I probably haven't done a great job in breaking it down so that you can really grasp it. That's why I think that my advice to you would be to find some time this week in your own devotional moments uh, 
and spend some time in these verses. Because really, I'm not that great of a teacher, but the Holy Spirit is a perfect teacher. And you need to let the Holy Spirit help you get a grasp on this. And you say, well, you know, I just, I just believe it. I mean, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. I just believe it by faith. Okay, that sounds very pious. But the fact of the matter is, we need to grasp this revelation. We need to understand it. You need to fight the fight to, to make sure that your, what Paul calls your knowledge of God really increases to a fullness that you don't have right now. I know this is a hard passage. I know that it's theologically weighty. It's heavy. But it is the heart of our faith. If we get this wrong, if we get who Jesus is wrong, we can attend church all we want to, but we will never be Christians. This is the definition of what it means to be a Jesus follower. It is to understand who Jesus is. Find your way to John chapter 5 this week. Even if, you, even if you can't do study, read these verses every single day this week. It will not only prepare you for the rest of his argument that we're going to look at next week, but it will just give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to open up your mind as these words are implanted in your heart and you'll have a better appreciation of who Jesus is and why he is adequate to be Savior. If you don't know him, let me say this. You don't have to know everything about him to meet him and be made a new creature. I've spent a lifetime trying to understand the Bible better. You don't have to know everything up front. You just have to know this. Your sin separates you from God. Jesus is the perfect, elegant solution to that problem. And if you'll trust in the work that He did on the cross and in His resurrection, that's all you need to do to be made a new creature and begin this life that goes into eternity but starts right now. We're not going to be here very long. It's about time for us to, to be on our way. But we're going to take just a minute. I'm going to ask our worship leaders if they'll just, uh, just lead us for a, a brief moment. And I'm going to pray. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you need to know Jesus Christ now i don't mean five minutes from now i mean now is the time for you to respond our pastors will be here you come speak to one of us and we'll talk to you about what you need to know so that you can begin an eternal process of getting to know jesus better father thank you so much your word is powerful and even when it is beyond our grasp it, we still find ourselves drawn to it because we know deep inside of ourselves that it is an incredible explanation of what is true. Father, in this moment, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me.